Hey, how are we? Um, I just want to jump in. If you got a Bible, go to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. Um, as we get there, um, let me start with the story. So before I lived in L.A., I moved to, I lived in Dallas for 10 years. And I worked at a church in Dallas, and one of, one of the responsibilities, if you're a staff member at most churches, is when people are going through a, a medical crisis, uh, you, you, you try to be there. You try to pray. Uh, and so there's a particular lady in our church who was having a major operation, and so she was at a place called Baylor Heart Hospital. And so Baylor Heart Hospital um, is in a suburb of Dallas. It's not really in, 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 in Dallas proper. Uh, but I went to go visit this lady. And so because I'm at a heart hospital, something in my mind clicked, I should do healthy things, like take the stairs instead of using the elevator. And so uh, in most normal situations, I didn't care, but I was like, I don't want these heart hospital employees looking at me like I'm lazy. So I'm going to go ahead and take the stairs. So I open up the stairwell, go up six flight of stairs. It's a six flight, it's a six floor building. And so I'm going to go up six flight of stairs. I'm going to walk in, go pray for this lady, go about my day. But I get to the door and the door's locked in the stairwell. So I was like, all right, I'll go down to the fifth floor, find another set of stairs, get my way up. Go down to the fifth floor, the door on the fifth floor is locked. So then I, I go down to the fourth floor, same thing. I get to the third floor, and by this time, like my imagination's starting to run wild. And so I'm like, I'm gonna end up on the cover of the newspaper. The newspaper is this thing that back in the day they would like print things on. <laughs> Uh, so that you know what was happening in the world. Um, and so uh, I thought I was going to end up on the front of the newspaper. Local pastor dies in stairwell at a hospital. And so I was like, okay. So then I was like, well, wait a minute. I got a cell phone in my pocket. So I call, uh, the, I look it up on the internet, call and say, hey, I'm stuck in the stairwell. And the lady answers at the reception desk. She's like, okay, hold on. And then she hangs up. And so I'm like, are you supposed to do that at a hospital? Like, what if this was an emergency? Like, it personally feels like an emergency. Like, somebody come get me. And so I go all the way back up to the sixth floor. I call again. The, the reception lady is like, okay, hold on. She puts me on hold for what was probably like 10 seconds, but felt like 10 years. And so then the lady on the sixth floor answers. She says, hey, sixth floor, Baylor Heart Hospital. I'm like, hey, I'm stuck in the stairwell. The door is locked. She's like, all right, hold on. It gets quiet. I'm like, are you coming to get me? And after about a minute, she opens the door. And I'm like, hey, thank you so much. I'm sure that this happens with people all the time. And she's like, no, it's just you. <laughs> and I tell you that story because I actually want to push back against that idea tonight. We're going to spend some time talking about sin. And I think the thing that you need to know above all else is that it's not just you. That it's ultimately all of us that are stuck in the stairwell of our own sinful making, and we need somebody to rescue us, and it's not just some of us, but if any of us are going to be serious about following Jesus, we have to be honest about what we're stuck in. And so as we enter into John 8 this evening, we're going to get to see a picture of two ways that people are dealing with sin, and one of them is going to be the one that honors Jesus and draws you close, and the other one is, is the opposite of that. And so I want to pray. We'll jump in. We'll, we'll review John 7 really quickly, jump into 8 and talk a little bit about 9. Uh, but most of the time that we'll spend tonight will be in John chapter 8. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, thank you. I know that uh, tonight we're just telling the truth about what sin is and what it does. Uh, even what we, just sh what we saw through uh, the video, just talking about it being the snare that can uh, entrap us and hold us hostage, the blunder that could cost us our lives. Um, Lord, I recognize uh, the, the topic of sin might, is just immensely heavy. But Lord, I pray that by exposing the truth of sin, that it will only set our hearts to, to be uh, receptive to the truth about your mercy. 
And so, Lord, I'm grateful for that. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so John chapter 7 uh, continues the journey of Jesus, continues what Jesus is doing. It actually feels like it takes a slightly weird turn because John chapter 7 starts with there's this uh, historic feast called the Feast of Booths that, um, that everybody is going to. And Jesus' brothers are like, hey, you should go to this. Like, if you're really trying to be known for what, who, who you say you are, you should show up at the feast and then publicly display the power of God that you say is in you. And Jesus is like, I'm not doing that. And so they go off to the feast, and then Jesus shows up later and, like, kind of pops up. at the, Like, everybody's like, where's he at? Where's he at? Where's he at? And then he pops up. He's like, hey, I'm here. And people are like, oh. And the Pharisees, uh, the re- religious elite, begin to get frustrated because as Jesus teaches, there's just more and more people that are starting to buy in, or at least it's causing this level of disruption that people are asking questions. What are we supposed to do with this guy? So much so that they hire officers to go and arrest him, and the guys go to arrest him, and Jesus continues to teach. And by the time they're done, they go back to the Pharisees, and they're like, where's Jesus? Why didn't you arrest him? And they're like, man, we've never heard anybody teach like this before. And he's like, did he deceive you? Also, like, like they hired the guys. It's like, you guys have one job, and you you didn't bring him back. And so John chapter 8 then starts with this simple statement, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I think it's important that we, we think about the context of this, because uh, I have, uh, I've read John 8 a lot of times in my life, but it wasn't until I was studying for camp this week that I recognized that John 8 wasn't like Jesus hanging out with his disciples in a private setting, and the Pharisees find out where he's at, and they drag the woman in and say, hey, do you know what she did? She committed adultery. What are you going to do about this? The law says that you should kill her. It actually is in the context of Jesus in a very public setting like this, in the temple, which is one of the most holy of places for them, the place of worship, the place of honoring God, the place of sacrifice, and they drag this woman. So it'd be like, it would be like somebody getting dragged, dragged in in the middle of church on Sunday morning and somebody standing up and be like, here's all the sin that they committed. What are we going to do about this? Can I just tell you as I read this text, it's terrifying. Like it, 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 it causes my chest to tighten up a little bit to think about that all these people were sitting there listening to Jesus teach, minding their own business, and all of a sudden from the back of the temple or from side, some side door, um, these religious elite officials come in dragging this woman who got caught in the act. I don't imagine that they were kind enough to be like, hey, get yourself dressed, make sure that you look presentable, do your makeup, do your hair, we got to go to church, we're going to have a conversation. She didn't get to put on her Sunday best. 
They drug her in after catching her in the act, throw her in front of Jesus and say, we caught her doing this. Now, one of the things that you need to know about adultery is obviously, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing what it is in a physical sense, but you need to understand that in the Old Testament, the way that God would describe the unfaithfulness of his people is he would call it spiritual adultery. So of all the things you could do, this feels like it's got the, the, the greatest implications of you have been a rebel against God and it needs to be dealt with. So much so that when you read not just the Ten Commandments, but all the law, the, the description of the law that follows after that, one of the things that's really clear is to be unfaithful in this way requires death. Can you imagine sitting in the crowd that day? Maybe nobody else knows what you've done, but maybe you've done the same thing as that woman. Can you imagine sitting in that crowd that day? I mean, I just came to church. I heard this Jesus dude is cool. Like he, like apparently, like he heals people. And then all of a sudden, this woman gets drugged in. If you're a visitor at church that Sunday morning, like, is this what you guys do? I don't think I'm coming back next week. Like the terrifying reality of the setting that these people are dragging this woman in to be ridiculed and then ultimately to be publicly executed to try and prove a point of, okay, Jesus, are you who you really say that you are? And then Jesus, all this is going on around him. And Jesus has this habit, we talked about it in John 3, of Jesus seems to be having a different conversation than everybody else is having. And so when Nicodemus is like, you're an awesome teacher, he's like, unless you're born of the, of the spirit and water, you're not born again. I imagine Nicodemus was like, what, what are we talking about? I imagine these Pharisees drag this woman in and they're like, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? The law of Moses says that you should execute her. You should, and, and, and can we just talk about stoning for a second? What an awful way to die. People throw heavy rocks on you until you're dead. That's awful. And so then Jesus, in the midst of this, doesn't explain, doesn't argue, doesn't say, well, are you guys sure? Like, uh, maybe this is not the setting. Can we have a meeting later on? Jesus just seems to be having a different conversation. He bends down on his knee, and he just begins to write in the dirt. Now, people smarter than me have argued what Jesus was writing in the dirt. Some have posed theories that he was sitting down and he knew the hearts of the people that he was talking to because we heard that all the way back in John chapter 5 that nobody had to explain people to him because he knew people's hearts. Uh, but it says that maybe Jesus was down on the ground writing these people's names and the sins that they had. Other people were saying, well, maybe he was writing about the mercy of God and the way that the God forgave. Maybe he was writing out the law with his finger. I don't know. He might have been writing his grocery list. We have no idea what Jesus was writing. But I do think there's an implication that God would get down on the ground and be in the dirt, in the middle of somebody's dirt. That he wasn't separating himself, making himself look holy. Like in that day and age, when you were a teacher in the temple or in the synagogue, you were this person of influence and authority and power. It would have been odd for you to get down on your knees on the ground and start writing in the dirt. Like you're supposed to be pristine. And isn't that the conversation that they're having? Jesus, if you're holy and there's been something dirty has been brought in front of you, how are you going to deal with something that's dirty? And Jesus' physical posture is, I'm not eliminating the dirt, I'm entering into it. And so Jesus gets down on the knee and he's writing in the dirt. And then he looks at them and he says, hey, if any one of you has not committed sin, you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. Let's talk about sin. 
the word here, uh, Bible, your Bible's written in three languages. So your Old Testament's written in, the, in a language called Hebrew. Um, your New Testament is written in two languages, Aramaic and Greek. And Aramaic is a derivative of Hebrew that um, as the culture changed and as uh, the, the Hebrew people mixed with other cultures, it was a derivative of, their, it was a derivative of that language. And so in, in Aramaic, here is what's being written. Jesus uses the word for sin that literally means to miss the mark. Um, I love the Olympics. I love the Olympics because I used to run track, and so uh, watching track and field is fun. Uh, like having two weeks in August every four years where I can just sit around and watch sports even while I'm at work, and nobody's really mad about it because they're like, go USA. Like that, I love that. I love it because I get to watch the dream team play all the time. But I also love it because I get to watch sports that I would never do. But I think they're actually really cool. And one of my, those sports for me is archery. Like, I grew up as the kid who loved Robin Hood. All versions of it, like the Disney version with the fox, Robin Hood men in tights, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. Like, I loved all, I, every version of Robin Hood that you could get. I like the Russell Crowe version, and it's not even that good. Like, I just love Robin Hood. I want, I, want a, like, I want a modern Robin Hood with a crossbow, with a trigger. Like, I'm into, I'm like into that. Because archery's cool. I don't care what anybody says. Archery's cool. Part of the reason why I like Hunger Games, because Katniss is bad with that bow and arrow. Like, so when the Olympics rolls around, I get to watch. First of all, I'm a little bit disappointed that the only thing you got excited about was Katniss. Robin Hood deserves more love. So the idea in archery is that you are trying to hit the center of a target. You're trying to hit the bullseye. And if you're really good, like Katniss or Robin Hood, you could split somebody else's arrow. That's how good you are. And the language in, Rob, in, in archery, when you shoot at the target and you miss or miss the mark, that language is actually where we get the idea of sin. And so sin is this idea of missing the mark, that you're aiming for this standard and you're not meeting the standard. And so the question that Jesus is asking is, hey, if any of you are perfect, you go first. Uh, maybe a, a better or a deeper explanation of sin is that sin is not just that you miss the mark because um, we should have some grace for lack of perfection. Uh, but, but this idea of the lack of perfection, if sin is the umbrella, under the umbrella of sin, there are two things, iniquity and transgression. Iniquity is a term that means that something is bent the wrong way. It's this idea that there's this internal bent towards sin that doesn't allow you to, to hit the mark because inside of yourself, you don't want to do that. And then transgression is this idea. It's similar to the word trespass. And so, uh, again, because I, I'm a dad of a four-year-old, and so my life is spent either sneaking watching sports when he's sleeping or watching Disney because that's what he wants to watch. We're in a Finding Dory, Finding Nemo stage right now. And so... Finding Nemo has that epic scene where Nemo goes to school for the first day and they're right there by the cliff and, and uh, Marlin is freaking out because Nemo's like, he thinks Nemo's going to go to the boat. He's like, Nemo, you can't do that. You don't swim well. And he's like, I hate you, dad. And so that he's arguing with his teacher. He's like, well, maybe he's not ready. He should say. And so then Nemo, like with his one small fin swims out there and he's right by the boat and his dad's like, don't you touch it. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. And he like looks him in the eye and he's like, And that, and then, and then 
Susie, the octo uh, octopus, was like, he touched the butt. Like, like, like. <laughs> that moment when he stares his dad in the eye and says, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm doing this anyways. That's the idea of transgression. And so why is it important that I built this umbrella, that this sin is the idea of not meeting the standard, and under that umbrella idea, there are these two smaller ideas of that sometimes we look the Lord in the face and say, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm doing this anyways. And there's also this internal dynamic in us that says that in and of ourselves, we are not able to meet that standard, that there's something bent in us towards sin. That's important to know because sin is not just this personality quirk that we just kind of deal with. Sin is this deep internal rebellion against God that says, I can do this better than you're asking me to do this. I should be king or I should be queen instead of you. And so therefore, I'm going to look you in the face and say, I can run this better than you can. Isn't that how sin came into the world? Genesis chapter 3. My church gets mad at me because they know it's going to be like every three-week rotation that somehow we're going to end up in Genesis chapter 3. And the thing about Genesis chapter 3 is it's the saddest chapter in the entire book book of the Bible. Because all the mess that the, thank you for asking that question, because in my notes, the answer is um, that Genesis chapter three is where everything goes wrong. But here's how it starts. Adam and Eve have been put in the garden of Eden. And what's interesting about the garden of Eden is that in the center of the garden, there is a tree and that tree is this tree of good and evil. And there's a command for them that they should not eat of that tree. Now here's the problem. In our minds, the way that we conceive of the world is that somebody giving you a rule to follow is actually the enemy of your pleasure. But the garden, garden of Eden actually means good or pleasure or a place of pleasure that right in the center of pleasure is this place of obedience. Obedience isn't the rival of your joy. It actually is what leads you to it. And so in the, in the midst of this, the serpent says to Eve, hey, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this tree? And she's like, well, no. He says that we can eat of all the other trees, but if we eat of this tree, we'll surely die. And he's like, but will you? Like, maybe he's holding out on you. Maybe if you do what you want to do, maybe you become like him. Maybe you have the same power and authority. Maybe you have the same knowledge. Maybe you have the same uh, uh, existence as he does. Maybe if you do what you want, it proves that you're equal to who God is. And the problem with sin is that we were repeating that narrative over and over again, that God, you've said this, but your rules get in the way of my pleasure. And so if I do what I want to do, I get to be God, and I think I can run this better than you can. And so when Jesus says to them, if any of you have been perfect and haven't fallen into that trap, throw the first stone. Here's my question. How do you end up being the last one? Right, like it says that they all one by one drop their stones, starting from the oldest to the younger. Like, who was like, I mean, maybe. Like, like why didn't everybody just drop their stones at the same time and run off? Because it makes no sense to be like, oh yeah, I was perfect. In fact, can I take it a step deeper? Like, if, if, if you came to camp this week, and I said the hope for your soul is that you only have to do one small thing, be perfect from here on out. Like, I, I just don't know that anybody's going to be like, got this. Let me get my bags. I'm headed home. Because the reality is we missed the mark. Um, I, I'll just tell you, camp might be one of the easiest weeks for you to actually try and hit the mark. 
because some of the distractions that might lead you to sin aren't, so, aren't around you like normal. You don't have the same level of access to your phone that you normally have. You don't have that younger brother or that younger sister or that older brother or that older sister that, man, you would be a kind, patient, godly person if it wasn't for them in your life. You don't have the same rules. Like, like you spend most of your day cramming Skittles into your face, drinking energy drinks, and running like maniacs around here. Like, that's the life. I don't know that heaven's going to look like that, but I don't know that heaven's not going to look like that. And so this week, in a, in a strange way, is this, this space where it actually is easier to hit the mark. But if we had an honest conversation, you haven't even been perfect this week. That this idea of living uh, this profession uh, that you're always at every possible second going to nail it, that feels exhausting. In fact, some of you in the room, you're exhausted, not just because you stayed up till two o'clock in the morning watching videos on your phone and keeping other people in your room up. Some of you are exhausted because you've been trying to make yourself be perfect in every area of your life. Perfect grades, perfect attendance, perfect responsibility, perfect behavior. You've been trying to be perfect and you know better than I can preach it that it is wearing you out because you cannot hit the standard. And so Jesus asked this disruptive question to these men and says, hey, if any of you is perfect, go first. And they drop their stones and walk away. And then he turns to this woman who is obviously guilty. And he looks at her and he's like, hey, where'd, the, where'd everybody go? Is there anybody left here to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. Now think about this scary moment. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is sent by God to do the work of God, and what sure understanding of the work of God is, is that God is coming to eliminate sin, eliminate evil, make the world right, and she has obviously committed sin. She has obviously been evil, and he has more power than the ones who are going to kill her. Like, think about that moment of standing in front of Jesus knowing that what you did is clearly known, and there's no one else to protect you. And so him asking the question, Hey, is there anyone here, or is anyone left to condemn you? And her response being no. And Jesus was like, neither do I condemn you. Go, and don't sin anymore. Now, I think it's really important that you see these two things next to each other. You have this group of men who have built their life on the charade of living up to a perfect standard. And you've got this woman who obviously has not and was caught in the act of her sin. And in this moment when Jesus asked the probing question, hey, have you, have you met the standard? The answer for everybody is no. And these people who have built their lives on knowing religious truth, in a moment when they should run towards Jesus, they run away from him. And this woman, who's obviously so sinful that what would be right and legal in their, in their law 
would be to kill her where she stood. She moves towards Jesus and receives his forgiveness. I'm convinced that maturity in your faith is when you mess up, you run towards Jesus instead of running away from him. I'm just going to tell you, I, I, I became a believer around seven or eight years old. I can remember sitting with my, my mom in church, singing this old hymn, Majesty, Worship His Majesty, Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings, turning and looking at my mom and saying, he did that for me, walking to the front and being prayed for that I could accept Jesus. And so I'm 40 years old now. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, I can't count the numbers that high. So I've been following Jesus something like 33 or 32 years. Not perfectly. In fact, what I'm finding out more and more is the more I follow Jesus, the more that I see areas in my life, areas in my heart, areas in my mind in the way that I think that are not pleasing to him, areas where I still say, you know what, I think I can do this without you. And I'll tell you that what maturity is it's not more time spent serving Jesus. It's when he is kind enough to show me that I don't meet the standard, that I walk, I walk towards him instead of running away from him. Um, can I say some really hard things to you? It's, it's really just one. Um, here's my prayer for you. That the Lord would strip you of the facade of acting like you're Okay. Like, I love that in this moment, Jesus writing in the dirt, which we don't know what he's writing, strips everybody in the room of the facade of acting like, yeah, I got this. Uh, I, something I say to my church all the time is, there is no Christian version of fake it till you make it. And I've, I'm sorry that we've tried to convince you otherwise. Uh, it actually was an accident that I wore this Be Real shirt today. Um, it wasn't an accident that I wore it. It's an accident that I wore it on the day that I'm talking about sin. But man, what would it look like if leaders displayed maturity not because they got to jump up on stages with face mics and teach, not because they knew more Bible facts, but because they believed the truth about not just sin in general, but their sin. And they were running towards Jesus and they were confessing their sin. What would that look like if we were that people in that church? Can you imagine your friends who battle sin, who think that, well, I can't go to the church because if I go to the church that the Lord's going to hit me with a lightning bolt, which is really kind of ridiculous because he's Lord everywhere and so he can get you at Target just like he can get you at the church. That's not very comforting for you, but it is true. Can you imagine if they were able to know that when they walked in that they weren't going to be like that woman drugged to the front and be put on parade because of their sin, but they were going to offer, walk into a room that's like, hey, there's no one here to condemn you because we're just like you. Can you imagine what it would feel like if even some of you sitting in the seats, that you're here and you're doing camp, but what's the most intimidating thing for you is not worship, not listening to me yell at you and not breathe for like 40 minutes, but like when you get in the cabin time and you start having to answer questions, you're like, well, if I have to talk about myself, they're going to find out who I really am. Could you imagine if you were able to sit in that circle and, and the question was asked by Jesus, is there anyone here to condemn you? No, there's no one here to condemn you because this is true of everybody else. One of the things that I, I love about this story is that this story, um, 
I'm going to use a big theological term. Um, this is a story of justification. Justification is a term that means someone who's not innocent is declared innocent. And so the, the woman who was caught in adultery is not innocent. It's not like Jesus was like, oh, no, those, there's no evidence against you. Those were fuzzy photos off of somebody's cell phone. We can't really tell that it's you, so we, we got to drop the charges. You're okay. It's like, no, you did it. We know that you did it. We caught you in the act of doing it. And yet, because of the mercy of God, I'm going to declare you innocent. Um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I say kid, 15, I couldn't drive. And so Friday nights were spent hanging out with my parents, eating pizza, watching pay-per-view movies. I was not cool. Um, and so back then, like, it wasn't like you went to the channel on your TV or you went to the app on your TV or your phone and you rented a movie. Like, you had to, like, go to the store and, like, buy a box, hook the box up to your TV, like, pay money. Like, it was, like, like, this was, like, this was a labor of love for my parents for us to rent a movie. And so I can remember in 1996 sitting down on a Friday night and watching a movie with my parents called A Time to Kill. It's an awesome movie. And it's the story of... I believe it's Alabama, a young girl in Alabama walking home from school and two guys, she's an she's a African-American young girl, gets accosted by two older men who abuse her, sexually abuse her, throw cans at her, but they leave her alive. And so when her dad finds out, they, they go to the police, the men are arrested, there is a court case, and the men are brought, they're minor charges, but no, nothing that equals the weight of their crime. And so her father, played by Samuel L. Jackson, is standing in the lobby of the courthouse. And when those two men walk out, he pulls a gun out from under his coat and shoots both men right there in broad daylight. And the rest of the movie, I know this is really heavy, but I promise this is a theological point. The rest of the movie is Matthew McConaughey serving as his attorney, trying to get him acquitted for what he's done. And so in the South, in that era, as a black man having shot two men in cold blood in the public, this feels like it's an impossible task. And so at the end of the movie, um, they're getting ready to declare the verdict. Uh, uh, the name of the dad is Carly Haley, about Carly Haley and what he did. And you actually see two lines of people. And on one side are people that are saying that you should free Carly Haley. And on the other side, you see a group of people that are like, you should throw the book at him, that he has done this, it's clear, you should, you should arrest him and you should put him in jail for the rest of his life. And so that you have that scene playing out while the court's deliberating, and then you, they show the courtroom doors, and this little boy comes running out screaming, he's innocent, he's innocent, Carly Haley is innocent. And obviously all these people are erupting and cheering, all these people over here are like, I can't believe that happened, he obviously did this, he's guilty. And as much as I love what that little boy said, that little boy is a liar because Carly Haley is not innocent. Carly Haley did it. But the judge had the power to say, as much as I know what you did, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to declare you innocent despite the thing that you actually did. Here's what I see Jesus doing in the text for this lady, that nobody can say the woman caught in adultery, she's innocent, she's innocent, she didn't do it, she's innocent. No, she's guilty. But Jesus has the power because he is a just judge to say that I can look at the situation and declare you innocent even though you're not. The challenge is, how can he do that and still be good? Because if sin is bad, 
and sin needs to be dealt with, how does he get to do that and still be considered just if he's justifying people that don't deserve it? We'll talk about that more tomorrow. But I want to end with, I just, as I was getting ready to walk up, I just felt this burden that it's not fair for me to challenge you to be people where your friend or somebody in your cabin can be honest about their sin because you've been honest about yours and not be honest about mine. And so I, I told you that I, around seven or eight years old, I came to the Lord. Um, when I got into middle school, I, I had a, just a season of rebellion. And, and, and when it wasn't, like, I don't want to oversize it. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I was, I was out robbing banks. Um, I was just a rebellious kid that didn't want to honor the Lord with my mouth, um, with my eyes, with, I, I, I was, I, but I was trying to be good at sin. When I got into high school, I was in a setting like this. And my youth pastor was speaking, and he was speaking about forgiveness. And he was talking about that there was this call for me to forgive other people. And I, I'll tell you, I was sitting there, and I wanted to walk up on the stage and punch him in his forehead. Because I'm like, you don't know my life. You don't know the people that you're asking me to forgive the things that they've done to me or the ways that I, that I felt betrayed by them. And I'm just going to state, like, like, I had an oversized idea of my own suffering. Some of what you have walked through and the pain that you guys have felt, I, what I was going through does not compare on any level whatsoever. And then he made this statement. The reason that you do that is because of all that Christ has forgiven you of. And every stone that I had in my hand, I dropped. And I was undone. I can remember coming to the front of the room and crying. And not like the kind of dignified, like, yeah, Jesus, you got me cry, But like, like snot, like people like, ooh, ooh. I'm going to lay hands on you, but it's going to be like three-pointers, like from a distance. Like, I'm not getting any of that on me. And so you would think having that type of epic experience with the Lord before my junior year of high school, that the only trajectory from there is up. I could tell you there was a lot of up, but there was a lot of down. My, my line of, of maturity looks a lot more like a roller coaster than it does going up a mountain. To the point where, at 20 years old, going to the University of Oklahoma, felt really call, clearly called by the Lord into ministry. Began to serve as an intern at my church, and shortly thereafter, they hired me to, to lead children's ministry, which I, I told you guys, I, I talked to them like I talked to you, which, again, I think there's a lot of them that may be in counseling. And then, and then I led college students. And I can remember in particular, one, one Saturday night leading into a Sunday morning, um, I had to be at the office late because I needed to get a whole bunch of things done, and I was working on ministry stuff. And as I worked on ministry stuff, I ended up getting on the internet, and I ended up getting on the internet, and I ended up going down this wormhole where I ended up looking at pornography in my office at the church. I'm just going to tell you, that's a fireable offense. And so recognizing just how easily I had slipped. And I don't want to make it sound like I had slipped into sin because it was like, man, I had this perfect record from 17 until that point in time, and then I randomly got on the internet. No, I was, I was feeding that sin on a regular basis. So much so that being on the internet at my office at the church, I couldn't fight the temptation, but I typed in the website and I went there. 
And that morning, my bosses walk into the office and I have to walk in and I have to tell them, I, if you get on the internet and check my search history, you're gonna find out where I was last night here at the office perpetrating my sin. And so if we can get through today, I'll come back tomorrow and clean out my office. I was caught. And they looked at me and they said, we would fail to show you what the mercy of God truly is if all we did was let you finish your services today and then pack up your office tomorrow. How do we walk with you? How do we love you? How do we help you overcome something that you don't have the power to overcome by yourself? And so I stand here this evening talking to you about the mercy of God in the face of our sin, not because, man, I studied about it this one time in a book and it sounded awesome, but because I, like Carly Haley, I, like the woman in John chapter 8, I, like many of you, that if the Lord wanted to expose me for how awful my sin was and is, that everybody in the room would have the right to throw rocks, except for I'm not the only one. And so here's my heart for you. My heart for you is that you would hear this and that maturity would be running to Jesus and saying, hey, there's some things in my life that I know don't please you. Some things that I'm doing and some ways that I'm thinking. But if, if that doesn't happen, then I pray that the kindness of the Lord for you is that he would strip you of the facade of faking it. In church, we often talk about the wrath of God, and I'm almost done. And there's two types of the wrath of God, the active wrath of God and the passive wrath of God. So the active wrath of God is what you think of, like what you saw in the video, like crazy waves and lightning in the background and like, you know, book of Exodus, like plagues and all that good stuff. Uh, and, and that seems terrifying. The passive wrath of God makes me more afraid because the passive wrath of God is, if you want your sin that bad, I'll let you have it. The active wrath of God is, I love you enough that I'm not going to let you do this. I love you enough that I'm going to strip you of the facade of pretending like it's okay. I'm going to rip that away because sin kills, sin destroys, sin distorts. Sin doesn't leave anything better. Sin is the house guest that when they come over, you're like, hey, you can stay for a little bit while because it's fun hanging out with you. Then they eat all your food, destroy all your stuff, and walk out and leave you to clean up the mess. And the Lord's like, I don't want that for you. And so I would rather the Lord strip you actively of all the things that you can pretend like are okay and just say, now your sin's been exposed, run to me, then allow you to continue to play the game of acting like your sin's not that big a deal. It's a big deal. And I'm praying that you would hear about the mercy of God that says, there's no one here to condemn you. Tonight when you go to cabin time and you have conversation with your leaders, there's not going to be a leader in the room that's going to be like, I can't believe that you sinned. I have never done that. Because then you'd be like, uh, well, lions is sin, and right now you are, you're doing a terrific job at that. Your leaders, your peers aren't standing there with rocks in their hand waiting to condemn you because they've caught you in something. They're actually standing next to you and they're either saying, I need to confess where I'm at or they're, or they're sitting next to you saying, the Lord delivered me from that. Let me tell you how. 
But my prayer for you is that you would not play the game. But that if you're in sin, that you would show maturity by running towards Jesus instead of running away from Jesus. Let me pray. So Lord, tonight, I know the topic of sin is, is heavy. And particularly in our Western culture, we try to avoid it because we don't like to talk about weakness. We don't like to talk about brokenness unless we can talk about it in a way that makes us look like we're that much more strong. But Lord, I pray tonight that you would strip us of the facade of being okay. Tonight, would you allow us to, to hear that it is okay for us not to be okay. And that you and your kindness will not leave us there. You will not, you will not just allow what's been uh, perpetrated by us in our sin. That you won't just look at it and say, get yourself out of this. But instead, that you would give us this word of encouragement that you do not condemn us. And then give us this challenge that you, by your spirit, will help us achieve to walk forward and not sin anymore. And it's going to be a long road. And it's going to be a long walk. But Lord, I pray tonight that we could tell the truth about not just sin in general, but our sin. And that, Lord, that we would understand that we missed the mark, and we missed the mark because of two things. Because our hands are dirty because of the ways that we trespassed, and because our hearts are impure because of the things that we've believed. And that, Lord, if we know the truth about sin, and if over the last few days we've understood the truth about you, here's what we know, that you can clean our hands and you can purify our hearts. And so, Lord, would we trust you enough to ask you to do that? Tonight, would maturity be shown not by dropping the stones of condemnation and running away from you, but by looking you in the face and saying, only you can make it right. Would you clean our hands and purify our hearts? We trust you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.